0: In Jackson, Mississippi, there has been no drinkable tap water since late July.
1: It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Everything is horrible. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. It really is. It's a disaster, you
0: know. That's Tammy Williams. She lives in Jackson. She told Post reporter Emmanuel Felton that the water is giving her family rashes and lumps, even though the city told residents that they could bathe in the water
2: you ever think about leaving Jackson or like what, yeah what yeah I mean I'm, I mean everybody's
1: like you know what we getting out of here yeah we getting out of here we get out of here first smoking I said how are we gonna go are
2: we? <laughs> they was
1: like how are we gonna get there I said man we are gonna do something to get out of here mm. but it's, it's like it's horrible though you know the state the state we're living in is, is straight poverty you know if sure. you try to do anything to, to get ahead
0: Jackson is a majority black city with more than one hundred and fifty thousand residents. They've had long-standing issues with water. But now severe floods, a failed water treatment plant, and crumbling city infrastructure has brought the city to a crisis with no end in sight. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is post reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September seventh. Today, how the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, got so dire. Plus, later in the show, we take you to Peru, where a farmer is fighting for environmental justice. Emmanuel Felton has been reporting from Jackson. Local officials there say that some of the water pressure issues have been restored over the weekend. But they warn that there is no clear timeline for when the water will be drinkable again.
2: Jackson really got on everyone's radar last week when the governor came out and announced that the entire city was without clean drinking water.
0: As we speak, we are drafting a state of emergency declaration with regards to Jackson's failure to produce running water. This is a very different situation from a boil water notice, which is also a serious situation which residents of Jackson have become tragically numb to.
2: In the days before, there had been heavy rains and near record flooding on the Pearl River. And those two issues combined to take out the main water processing center in the city of Jackson. To be
1: the capital city, We shouldn't have to continue to live like we're living with no clean drinking water.
0: That's resident Veronica Jackson.
1: We're still in the middle of a pandemic. and I think a lot of people don't understand it. You need water to maintain sanitary. So if you don't have water to be sanitary, you just gonna be passing along a lot of the disease sometimes um the water when it comes out of the tap is brown and then sometimes it's clear it just depends on how close of a time frame when they're doing fixing on the on the water so sometimes it's brown then sometimes it's clear like it's supposed to be so right now it's at a clear pace but once they go and start working on the water or treating the water then it's going to come in the house brown And so during those times when it's brown, you have to be careful washing your clothes because you don't want the brown stains to get in your clothes.
0: Veronica says that a lot of times she has to use bleach and sanitizer when she does her laundry. And unfortunately, she has seen water issues like this before.
1: The last time we went through a water issue was in February of uh, this year when the ash storm came. We had a lot of water pipes that burst throughout the
2: city, so we went without water for days because of that. But I think what's really been lost is that there was a crisis in Jackson long before the governor's speech on Monday. And what had been going on for years now is... Really almost constant boil water notifications. That means to use the water for cooking, you should boil it. You shouldn't drink it. And so since July of this year, there's been
0: a boil water advisory. But that wasn't that uncommon in Jackson. There are still questions about how Jackson got this bad. Emmanuel says that residents point to systemic racism. It's a majority black city in a majority white state. And they say that there hasn't been investment in city infrastructure.
2: So I spoke to Jackson's former director of planning. And what he told me was that, you know, this is a really old infrastructure. But age itself isn't necessarily a problem if it's well maintained. So as he pointed out, like... The water pipes and system in a place like New York is twice as old as in Jackson. But what Jackson has suffered from is decades of disinvestment. And he really painted the start of that back to white flight when white middle class people started to leave Jackson for its suburbs. There's a lot of
1: minority people in Jackson. A lot of white Americans have moved to other cities and left the majority of African-Americans in Jackson. So a lot of times the help doesn't come as fast as it would have came had it been a majority Caucasian-Americans in the area. Where in Jackson, we have a lot of vacancies. We have a lot of buildings that's been abandoned, houses that nothing has been done to either demolish those buildings or correct them to where they can be
2: better built. And I think that's what a lot of people in Jackson felt like. Jackson was being forgotten. That all of these more affluent communities that ring Jackson had begun to take all of its resources and really all of its political cloud. And what Jackson was left with was 150,000 people down from a, a peak population around 190. 93% Black, and and often
0: forgotten. But this isn't just a problem in Jackson. We've seen this in places like Flint, Michigan, another majority Black city where people have struggled with access to clean water.
2: I mean, you look at the studies on safe drinking water, and it shows that Black Americans and Native Americans are, are far more likely to have problems accessing safe drinking water than their white peers. And, you know, you're left with the question, right? Like, it seems that this could not be a coincidence that this keeps happening in these uh, majority minority cities. And so we have to think about, like, what are what are old to these places that experience white flight that are left with a tax base that can't really support the
0: infrastructure that was left behind? There is a push by the state government to fix this problem. But Emanuel says that, so far, there is no legislative solution in sight, or any solution.
2: With the governor and a lot of top legislators have really been stressing that they're all in this together. But that's just not a sentiment that really has much purchase in Jackson. I mean, over the last few years, there have been attempts at the legislature to to solve these issues, from bond issuance to allowing Jackson to have a special tax to, to deal with its water issues. And And none of those have really gotten very far in the legislature. So it just feels like Jackson has been left to fight these issues on its own.
0: Emmanuel Felton covers race and ethnicity for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Murray Smith. After the break, we take you to the mountains of Peru to meet the man who is fighting to save his town from climate change. We'll be right back.
4: As you're walking along the trail to the lake, there are, it's mostly rocks, but there are some clusters of little shrubs and some pretty yellow wildflowers. So in May, I went to the city in Peru called Huaraz.
0: That's Sarah Kaplan. She covers climate and the environment for the post.
4: It's in the Andes, in the mountains. It's about, 10,000 feet of elevation and it's in this range called the Cordillera Blanca which are the highest mountains in Peru and they actually mean white range because they're capped with snow and actually with glaciers
0: Sarah went to Peru to see this lake, Lake Palcacocha, a lake created because the natural glaciers there are melting
4: and if the lake were to burst it could drown the entire city of Juarez that is nestled in the valley below
0: Right now, accelerating glacial melting is threatening communities around the world, in places like Pakistan.
3: Northern Pakistan is experiencing a climate calamity. The glaciers are melting faster than expected, and the following floods are causing widespread destruction.
0: We're seeing the same thing in Switzerland.
2: Across Europe's world-famous mountain range, glaciers are in retreat. In the past 10 years, 20% of the Alps' so-called eternal ice has been washed away.
0: And of course, there's Peru, where we're taking you today, near the town of Huaraz, where one man in that valley below is trying to keep this lake from bursting and decimating his town. And he's doing that by suing one of the biggest carbon emitters in the world. It's a David and Goliath fight between a local farmer and RWE, a major multinational energy company. This fight is over who should be held responsible and how to change the course of climate change.
4: Oh, now I'm coming up to the Laguna It's, oh, it's this beautiful, clear blue. What is it like being there? I mean, it's a beautiful trip. You go up this sort of winding, rocky, <laughs> dirt road. Um, if you get carsick e- very easily, like I do, like take some Dramamine, <laughs> and you you gain thousands of feet of elevation. Um, so you're up so high that like the air is really thin. Um, it's kind of difficult to breathe almost, but it's just breathtakingly beautiful. There are these wildflowers everywhere. The lake itself is this beautiful, like, Caribbean blue color. Um, and then there's these, like, soaring, you know, sharp peaks all around you. Um, and it looks very tranquil. Like, you wouldn't expect it to be this, like, super dangerous thing. But the whole time that I was there, I knew that this is... You know, this lake has a kind of dark side to it. Do you hear that? That crackling? So that crackling sound is the sound of water moving through the siphons. Um, but, I mean, you can feel, I can even feel the ground kind of trembling with the force of that water moving through the siphons so you can just imagine multiply this times a thousand or ten thousand or a million (laughs) um that would be how much water would be coming out with this force in the case of an outburst flood that's me uh, hiking around the lake Uh, you can hear me huffing and puffing because there's no oxygen (laughs) Um, And these siphons that I'm talking about, those are um, pipes that were—these, like, plastic pipes that were put in um, after—you know, shortly after scientists sort of revealed how much the lake had expanded in an effort to try to start draining some of that additional water out. Um, And they helped lower the level of the lake by a few meters, um, but not enough to really substantively— uh, affect the risk of a flood or the amount of damage that a flood would cause um, if it happened. So, Palcacocha, you know, it's high up in the mountains. It's created by meltwater from the glacier. And that's something that's natural, that's always existed. And, and it's always been dangerous. Um, people in Peru have always lived with the threat of what is known as a glacial lake outburst flood. And actually, in 1941, uh, Palcacocha, which was much smaller at the time, burst through the natural barriers that contained it and flooded the city of Juarez, and it was really catastrophic. It leveled like half the city, it killed about 1800 people, and, and there had been other floods like that in the Cordillera Blanca, and so Peru really pioneered these tactics to try to prevent future outburst floods. But in the early to mid-2000s, um, some scientists started mapping the lake using more advanced technology and they realized that it had actually grown a huge amount since those preventative measures were put in place. Um, Palka Kocha is now 34 times bigger than it was only in 1970, so 50 years ago. Um, and that means that the measures that were built then are not sufficient anymore. Um, And there need to be more measures put in place. And until that happens, Palcococha is like this ticking time bomb. Um, It could burst through the barriers and flood Juarez basically at any moment.
0: So why did you decide to come to this town?
4: What's happening in Juarez is it's happening in other places around the world too, right? There are many places where glaciers are melting and causing this outburst flood risk. And it's one of the most striking examples of climate impacts, I think, because it's like, what else could wipe out an entire city in a blink of an eye with no warning, right? It's terrifying and and really scary and really sad. But that's actually not what brought me to Juarez. <laughs> what brought me to Juarez is that there is this man, um, this farmer from the city who is trying to do something about it and to hold accountable the people who contributed to the climate change that is causing this problem in the first place.
0: What is he doing?
4: So his name is Saul Luciano Yuya, and he is actually suing uh, one of the biggest carbon emitters in Europe, this German energy company called RWE which, according to some analyses, is responsible for 0.47% of all of the greenhouse gases ever polluted into the atmosphere. And Saul says that RWE causes problem, so RWE should help pay for the cost of fixing it. And basically, Saúl is saying, because this company contributed 0.47% of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, they should pay 0.47% of the cost of security measures at Laguna Pacacocha,
0: So this guy, Saúl, is he like a, a lawyer or?
4: No, he's he's a farmer and a mountain guide um, from Juarez. He, his, he has a family farm up in the mountains, um, and then he also has a home in the city uh, that is sort of his base for his guiding business um, because Huaraz is a big sort of place for adventure tourism.
3: Claro, nos nos encontramos en la montaña. Aquí a la izquierda podemos ver la montaña palca.
4: I mean, one of the things that you instantly feel about Saul is how much he loves his home. There he was describing to me, you know, these vistas, the white, capped mountains from the snow and, and the beautiful views. And, you know, he's he's never seen any place that is as special or as impressive oh, yeah. as, as the Cordillera Blanca.
3: Sí, te sientes un poco que es, ahí estás, ¿no?, en los medios, pero yo más pienso que esto es... creo que por las... O sea, yo toda mi vida, los últimos 20 años...
4: I mean, he personally has felt the effects of climate change. His home is in the danger zone, um, the area of whereas that would be flooded if a glacial lake outburst flood happened. But he's also seen other effects of climate change. Um, He, you know, as a guide, he's part of the, you know, thing that, that helps his business is the beauty of these mountains and of these glaciers, and he's watched them shrink as he goes up there year after year. And then as a farmer, he's very dependent on... The water from these glaciers and the water from the rains and those have also become less dependable. Um, and he talked about, you know, the fields where his parents were able to cultivate, you know, these amazing crops year after year. Uh, he is now really struggling. Farming is also a big part of the economy in this area, and uh, the the drought risk and the, and the declining accessibility of water is another huge problem that looms. But
0: how did he end up starting this lawsuit? I mean, this guy who is a small business owner, a farmer in relatively rural Peru, like, how does he wake up one morning and say, I'm going to sue one of the most powerful and lucrative energy companies in the world?
4: Saul definitely didn't wake up one morning and decide he was going to do this. But the story really begins in 2014 when there was a big UN climate conference in Lima and a group of activists from this organization called German Watch, which, like, which is like a German climate group, um, had gone to Lima for the conference, and they decided they wanted to spend some time traveling around Peru afterward just to talk to people about the impacts of climate change and how they were experiencing them. And so that's how they wound up in the Cordillera Blanca. And the other important thing to know is at the time, there was this growing movement um towards what people call climate litigation. So this idea that, you know, there had been, at that point, there had been more than two decades of these UN climate conferences that hadn't really yielded any kind of meaningful international agreements. Um, Emissions were going up. And um, people were thinking about what are other ways that we could try to force countries and companies to change their behaviors. And one of them is sue people. (laughs) Um, And so you know, the German Watch policy director, this man Christoph Balls, had been thinking about you know, how might we pursue some kind of litigation that could contribute to putting pressure on a company or a government um, to try to get them to take action on climate change. And so that had been sort of swirling in his head.
3: We think there is an option that um, litigation can play a role. Um, we do not want litigation to replace what has to be done by politicians but um, when politicians um, act in a way that they destroy the freedom for the future generations if they, they destroy the fundamental rights of our Constitution then I think it's up to courts to say no that is not constitutional or in this case to say, look, um, you have to take responsibility.
4: And then when he was, you know, traveling after this UN conference, um, some mutual friends connected him with Saul. And, like, as soon as he started talking to Saul, he knew, if we're going to do a lawsuit, like, this is the man you want to be your plaintiff. He's, you know, incredibly eloquent. Um, He sees... The injustice of climate change really clearly.
3: Uh, sí, uh, creo que todos somos, somos responsables, no? Aquí somos responsables de qué
4: Sauls talking about how he feels a sense of of duty, of obligation to take action for his community and for, and for the future and to, and to protect the mountains and. I think that's the other thing that Kristoff that um, was really struck by was just like Saul's moral clarity that this is, um, you know, this is a huge moral issue that the, the future is dependent on what we do now and that he wants to contribute.
0: he, I don't know, worried or scared about being, like, the ultimate little guy going after this huge company?
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I mean, that's one of the things that he said he thought about before agreeing to this lawsuit was, like, I mean, it seems absurd, right? That, like, this, you know, one guy who's a small business owner and farmer in a pretty remote part of Peru would go after this very powerful Company, um, and he was like, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that I should do. It seems like the kind of thing like the government should do or the German government should do. Um, but the case that that German watch and Christoph um, and Saul's lawyer uh, Rhoda Verheyen, ultimately decided to make um, is actually that Saul the perfect person to be involved in this lawsuit because he is someone who has experienced the impacts of climate change firsthand. And they're actually using a very basic legal principle, um, you know, the same kind of neighborhood law that you would use to sue your neighbor if they had a dying tree that could fall on your house at any moment and they weren't fixing it. To say that, you know, in the context of climate change, like we are all global neighbors, RWE's actions have affected the atmosphere that ultimately threatens Saul's home. And so, RWE is financially responsible for some portion of the cost of um, helping to address that threat.
0: Wow. And what does RWE say to that?
4: So RWE has made the argument, um, and this case has been winding its way through the courts since 2015. Um, Initially, it was dismissed by a lower court in Germany. And then the upper court, the appeals court, ultimately took a look at it and decided that it could go forward, um, that it has merit. And that sort of, when I was in Peru, was when the court-appointed experts and the judges from Germany had actually come to us to see the lake and Saul's house and see some of the evidence for Saul's case firsthand. So, you know, it's still it's still making its way. Um, and we don't expect a decision until sometime next year. Um So that's all to say that, you know, it hasn't been decided one way or another. But RWE has basically argued that the effects of climate change are too complex to attribute, you know, any one impact to any one emitter. They say, like, you can't say that it's our carbon atom that is causing this harm. One other piece of evidence that has actually emerged in the years since Seoul initially filed his lawsuit Um, is this new body of research called attribution science. So it used to be true that you couldn't really say that one extreme weather event or one climate disaster was caused by emissions um, or caused by human activities. But scientists in the past few years have gotten really good at this attribution science where they can actually use models to kind of game out how an event have unfolded had climate change, like, not been in the picture hmm. versus how it's actually unfolded. And then they can say what percent of this disaster or how much worse was this disaster, how much more likely was it because of human activities. And there have been some attribution studies of the glacier melt and the expansion of Laguna Palco that have found that it's basically impossible to explain the retreat of the glacier hmm. and the, the expansion of the lake without climate change. And so... You know, the attribution scientists say actually there is evidence that human activities, um, you know, have, have caused this harm and that you can make this causal link between, you know, the power plants that RWE operates in Germany and the effects of climate change that are being felt in Peru. How much is
0: Seoul trying to get this energy company to pay?
4: So Saul is only actually asking for about $20,000. Um he says that because RWE contributed 0.47% of emissions, it should pay 0.47% of the cost of these enhanced security measures at Palkokotcha and that comes out to about 20k. Honestly, I mean
0: $20,000. I mean sounds like not a lot for any lawsuit. Involving a big company, but I mean specifically for a company like this, I'm sure that's just. I mean, even Chump Change would overstate how much money this is to this company. I mean, wh- why so small?
4: Yeah, so I mean, I think that the you know it's just it's a it's the principle of the thing in in Saul and his lawyers' minds, um, but also more importantly, it's the precedent that it would set. Um, And, you know, if you talk to Saul's lawyers, they say the fact that RWE is fighting so hard against having to pay potentially $20,000 is a sign of how powerful this precedent would be.
0: Interesting that this could be an argument that's used in the future by this town, by other people, by people in other countries to start demanding more money from from companies that have contributed so much to emissions.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I talked to um, one expert, a uh, legal expert who studies international climate law, and they basically framed it as like if this lawsuit establishes that a victim of climate change can sue a contributor to climate change, then there are 8 billion people on this planet, 8 billion victims of climate change they could also, right? And then very quickly, you know, the economics of being in the fossil fuel industry, of, of continuing to emit greenhouse gases starts to look very different. Um, and, you know, obviously what happens in the German courts doesn't change law everywhere else, um, but judges in one country pay attention to what judges in another country or how courts in another country have ruled. And there's actually been, you know, in this field of climate litigation, um A lot of recent successes
0: and how often do you see cases like this cases that use similar arguments to try to sue people for climate change
4: there's more and more every year Um, it's really grown since Saul first filed his lawsuit in 2015 I think there are now more than a thousand cases making their way through the courts most of them are in the US and Europe And they're actually seeing some success. So in the U.S., you know, I think people, many people have heard of the Juliana lawsuit. These children that have sued the U.S. government for its failure to act on climate change.
2: 21 young people ages 11 to 22 are suing the federal government for failing to fight global warming. They first filed the suit in 2015 against the Obama administration. And ever since, the group has survived a series of hurdles.
4: That has kind of been thrown out of the courts again and again. But uh, the European courts have been actually much more sympathetic. And there you've seen a Dutch court recently ruled that Shell is responsible for its emissions, not just the emissions that directly come from its product, but also its entire supply chain um, the German Supreme Court actually ruled that Germany's pledges under the Paris Climate Agreement are constitutionally binding, um, basically saying that the German constitution requires that the country significantly reduce its emissions. Oh Wow. And then you're also seeing efforts to bring cases before the International Criminal Court. There's actually something called the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, where some island countries are trying to bring cases around sea level rise. And, you know, it's this kind of building movement. So the idea is that it's not all of these cases are going to be successful, but the precedents will start to build on each other. That's so interesting. So people
0: like Saul are kind of at the center of trying to build this toolbox of being able to use the legal system as a way of of forcing people to be held accountable for climate change and and to start paying money to actually fix things.
4: Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting example of how People who have been very disempowered by the measures that we are used to thinking about or the systems we're used to thinking about in terms of action on climate change. Um, Like I've been to, you know, I attended the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow last year, and one thing that I could not get over was just how demoralizing it must be to be like a small island country or a poor developing country where your citizens are already experiencing the effects of climate change firsthand in a very severe way, like catastrophic droughts that lead to famine and sea level rise that is wiping out communities and all of these other things. And yet, like, you know, you don't have geopolitical clout. You don't have a huge economy. You know, Peru could decarbonize tomorrow and it wouldn't really make a dent in global emissions, right? And so there's you know and then a person like Saúl is sort of doubly disempowered because like not only is he from a country that doesn't have a lot of power but like he's a farmer he's from a rural area like even within Peru he you know the there many people in Waras talked about how like they didn't feel like the government in Lima was that responsive to them. And so the fact that like amid all of that he has found this way Um, or sort of seized on this tool to potentially say, like, no, I do have power, right? And I can use science and I can use the courts to try to, you know, take on this institution that's much bigger and wealthier than I am. Um, I just think it's really interesting. What would it mean to
0: Saul if he were to win this?
4: I mean, when I talked to Saul about this, he said that you know, if we win, it will mean that an emitter has been been held responsible for the consequences of their emissions, and um, that's a really big step, right? That isn't really happening right now.
3: Cuando la demanda se acabe, <clears throat> bueno, puede suceder que <clears throat> si ganamos, pues hemos avanzado al menos.
4: And he said even if we don't win, he hopes that this is going to make RWE and other companies think twice about, you know, the continuing to, to burn fossil fuels to create the pollution that leads to climate change because they want to avoid these kinds of lawsuits. And he said either way, we will have made them feel uncomfortable and that will be a step towards change.
0: Sarah, thank you so much.
4: Thanks for having me, Martine.
0: Sarah Kaplan covers climate and the environment for The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lexi Diao and Rena Flores. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington
3: Post.